Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Good evening, everyone. Um, we'd like to welcome you um, to the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute's evening lecture series. And this series is brought to you by the Vakra Center for Heritage Studies. And this is part of our Heritage and Memory series. This is the second one we've hosted this semester. Thank you all for being here. Um, we're very delighted to have with us Tim Winter, who is up very late in Perth, Australia to be with us. Um, I know you all have his um, biography with you, but just very briefly, um, Tim is one of the leading researchers in heritage diplomacy, um, focusing on the connections um, that we have of, uh, through maritime connections and how that is forming cultural policy today. Um, so I'm very much grateful to you to be with us tonight on behalf of all of us. And I'll turn it over to you to discuss heritage futures, oceans of connectivity. Thank you, everyone. And welcome, Tim. Thanks very much, Alia. That's um, uh, um, uh, a very interesting and um, succinct introduction that enables us to get into the theme, which is maritime diplomacy and other themes. So that's very helpful. And thank you to, to both you and Robert and the support team for organising um, today's session. Obviously, it's a great opportunity to be able to speak to you. And hopefully, I'll be able to uh, bring together some themes that will be of interest to a number of audiences or, or people who are in different regions and, and how they might see that how what I'm talking about connects to what is going on in their own region. So I'm going to talk about a number of themes um, in this talk that um, that may not be obviously so obviously connected. And the theme that I've been uh, uh, that's been proposed to talk about is the idea of heritage futures. And I'm going to link submarines and ceramics and conservation and conflict. And in doing that, I'm going to really try and highlight some forms of cultural policy, some archaeology and forms of heritage government governance in relation to international affairs today. And I argue that we're seeing a shifting economic and political order that is leading to new forms of cultural internationalism and diplomacy. So to do that, I'm going to draw from a couple of books of mining that have uh, just well, the, the first, the, the bottom one came out in 2019, Geocultural Power. And the one on top uh, is coming out in uh, hopefully around February next year, uh, which uh, constructs the idea of the Silk Road as a, as a discourse for future making as much as it is for a narrative of history. But in this evening's talk, I'm going to um, begin with the, with the top two there. So on the left, you see a, a porcelain pen holder from China, but it involves also some cobalt blue from Iran um, and using decorative motifs that tell us about transcultural flows of ideas and markets that, and with such items being shipped and sold in Europe over many centuries. Now, this is a type of material culture that now becomes described as forms of transnational or transcultural heritage, or indeed shared heritage. On the right, you have a submarine, an example of perhaps a trans -man -man transnational manufacturing industry. Multiple countries become involved in these types of military hardware. And these are often linked to ideas of heritage, the heritage of war, and you see those in museums and, and archaeological sites in countries. 
This is always discussed as a national form of heritage and merely an idea of a shared heritage. But let me complicate that picture for you and show you how a submarine speaks to ideas of shared heritage today in the ways in which I'm trying to highlight the connections between discourses of history and contemporary events. And to illustrate that, I first of all want to give you a couple of videos and take you sideways and encourage you to listen to some keywords from the very beginning. United States and Italy are bound together by a shared cultural and political heritage dating back thousands of years to ancient Rome. Over the centuries, the Italian people have blessed our civilization with magnificent works of art, science, philosophy, architecture, and music. On Monday, we pay tribute to the Italian explorer who led a voyage of discovery to the new world a gentleman known as Christopher Columbus. And to me, it will always be called Columbus Day. Some people don't like that, I do. Today, the United States and Italy draw strength from our cherished heritage as we work together to safeguard our people and promote prosperity. I come here today to reaffirm one of the oldest, one of the strongest alliances the world has ever known. It's long been said that the United States and the United Kingdom share a special relationship. The reason for this close friendship doesn't just have to do with our shared history, our shared heritage, our ties of language and culture or even the strong partnership between our governments. Our relationship is special because of the values and beliefs that have united our people through the ages. So what you see in those two videos is a language of shared cultural and political heritage. It's more than just about history. It's a language of shared values. And of course, underpinning this is the idea of a single civilization, the West. But is this just about speeches? Well, what we've seen in recent times, in the recent months, is this language of shared values and shared heritage become pivotal to a foreign policy agreement, a nuclear submarine program called AUKUS that some of you have said is as consequential as the fall of the Berlin Wall. So for many in the Indo-Pacific, this three-way alliance of an Anglosphere as an architecture of security and containment seems to carry echoes of neo-imperialism. It's a language of a free and open Indo-Pacific, built upon ideas of freedom and the values of de democratic liberalism. And these were presented as shared values of Indo-Pacific alliance, but the ways in which this visual imagery and the language of shared values is perceived in East Asia, Southeast Asia, South Asia and the Middle East is far from simple. For many in those regions, three white men carries echoes of histories of colonialism, of course, and in some cases, forms of political and violent oppression. And indeed, we can trace the genealogy of these ideas back to the 19th century. This linking of civilization and humanity, even, that you see in this graphic, underpinning discourses of peace and freedom enforced by military hardware. And the idea is that these become built through the colonial success of chivalry and the kindred interests of an English tongue, as that image suggests. So in this one poster, I would suggest we see the limitations of soft power analyses, that coercion and attraction are deeply entangled, and different forms of economic, military, and imperial power 
have distinct ideological foundations. And this is far more entangled and complicated than soft power arguments have come to argue in recent times. And in that respect, I would point you towards books by authors such as Duncan Bell and others who have shown this. So in Trump, Obama, Biden, Boris Johnson, and that fellow down under, it is the West that is a geocultural form with all its proclaimed values. And this suggests that we need to link civilizational discourses and ideas about shared histories and shared heritage to foreign policies today and regional architectures and the ways in which certain countries use them to advance their world-ordering ambitions. And if we start to adopt this frame of analysis, we see something significant going on in the language of civilizations today and East and West that are now central to the building of China's Belt and Road Initiative. So with the Belt and Road framed as a revival of the Silk Roads for the 21st century, the Silk Road becomes the basis for making claims of shared values and shared destinies, to use the language of Chinese diplomacy today. But note, this is a primarily a dialogue between countries from the non-West, from Asia, the Middle East and Africa, regions where a lot of resentment continues towards the West that continues to linger and shape foreign policies. Here then, China adopts the Silk Roads to internationalise its visions of peace, harmony, mutual respect and solidarity, to promote the idea that dialogue helps to build a more stable international order. And I would argue that these developments are having a significant impact on discourses of history and heritage today, whether it's in academia, international, international cultural policy and in popular culture. And this is a complicating, um, complicated but fascinating picture that is now unfolding. At the same time as this, we are seeing China and India and others asserting their place in the world and, and world affairs as civilizational states. This is a claim that suggests that these countries hold certain qualities of resilience to withstand political and economic shocks, but also hold certain qualities to guide and shape the global challenges of today. But what we see in these slides is how civilization is conceived primarily in material terms. The dominant form invariably is the role of mo monumental architecture and archaeology that has played in understanding those histories. And these structures speak of centers of power, of course, of kingdoms and armies, and they're demonstrations of power and authority. And what we've seen in the last century and a half is these ideas being transposed onto the nation state in the modern era. In the case of the Parthenon, the site stands in, as a metonym of modern Greek national identity, but it also stands as a metonym of Western civilization and even humanity, as we see in this UNESCO logo here. So here then we begin to see how our understandings of civilization have been shaped by both national and internationalist processes. And in that regard, these ideas of civilizational centers speak of hierarchies of, in world history and world culture, and who gets to write those hierarchies. And of course, the other of the civilized world is the barbarian. Each culture has these ideas of what, of what is the barbaric destroyer. Too often, for the West, it's uh, contexts such as the Mongolian geographies and Mongolian culture. Although, despite that, there's now attempts to reclaim that and re resuscitate the Mongol within world history. But these ideas of antiquity that now commonly circulate 
need to be understood in the context of modernity. Egyptomania offers a good example of that that emerged in the late 19th and 20th century. Ideas about monumental antiquity formed at the intersection of politics, popular culture, and expert analysis. So the evolution of civilization, that, as you see in that top slide there, is part of a, mu a mural by Edwin Blashfield in 1895, above the main reading room of the Library of Congress. It's an image that suggests a special relationship is held between Egypt as the first and America as the latest civilization, something that Trump was also alluding to. But there are many other examples from European colonial contexts, of course. And here in this slide, you see reproductions of the Cambodian temple, Angkor Wat, for an exposition in France. And these signaled how monumental civilization discourses on the other side of the world were deeply embedded in the imaginaries of empire and nation in Europe. Expert knowledge that gave authority to these ideas emerged around this time, such that European empires went around the world conserving, restoring and collecting, shaping narratives of regional and world history. And of course, there is extensive scholarship that demonstrates this and critiques this process. But this archaeology was also critical to geopolitics and strategic interests of European countries, particularly in the Middle East or Near East, as it was phrased. The surveying and institutional relations that were built around archaeology, but also the political geographies of these regions was partly about knowing the other, but also about building Holy Land scholarship in ways that ignored Islam that has been now well documented. But there were also narratives of history that were trans-regional. The Levant was central to ideas of Western Europe and Western civilization, and in that respect ignored trans-regional connections going eastward, as all these books demonstrate. So in the early 20th century, events that formed part that we saw in that previous slide formed part of a longer cultural politics of claiming regions and civilizations by particular scholars and countries. And Palmyra is a great example of this that holds, significant place, holds a significant place in the Western imaginary about antiquity. So artworks, and the example you see here, Robert Wood's illustrations of the 18th century that influenced architecture in London and elsewhere. So the rediscovery of Palmyra in the, 17th, in the late 17th century of 1691 is a key that was, it was a key moment in connecting Europe back to Greece and Rome associations that continue today in the arena of European electoral politics and the diplomacy associated with conflicts and post-conflict recovery, as you see here. But these civilizational imaginaries are now subject to contestation. The example you see in this slide is Russia proclaiming itself as a modern civilized state, using the site of Palmyra 12 months after ISIS was undertaking a number of executions there with Russia signaling that it was a guardian of Western civilization and proclaiming that Russia's rightful place within that at the heart of both European and Asian geographies as a Eurasian civilization. And these speak, these ideas speak to an intellectual and political commitment to Eurasianism that dates back to the 1930s. But this also goes beyond a, geocult a geocultural politics today then the site of Palmyra actually tells us something significant about the development of international cultural policy in the 20th century. And what we see here then is the legacy of all these imaginaries of civilizations and regions playing out in the World Heritage nomination of Palmyra in 1980. Now, for anybody that's familiar with World Heritage, the threshold that 
a site needs to reach to be listed by UNESCO is outstanding universal value. But what we see in this in this text, and particularly in the red excerpts from this from these paragraphs of significance, is the ways in which that outstanding universal value was constructed around European and Western civilizational connections in the ways that I've highlighted in those previous slides. So what this indicates is some of the ways in which and reinforces the idea of the ways in which UNESCO becomes or comes to be critiqued for being Eurocentric in the ways it identifies global values of, of cultures and regions. So in the case of arguing that it might be Eurocentric, we can look back to the 1930s. And what you see here is, a, is samples or, or fragments of silk that were found by Rudolf Pfister, the French archaeologist, who was interested in those, in those fragments, having discovered them in a number of tombs in Palmyra. He published extensively. But his, but his, both his articles and these subsequent books in the mid-1930s were very much ignored by his contemporaries, who were only interested in the historical connections of the Levant back to Europe via Rome. Now, some decades later, or nine decades later, his research is now being understood um, and, and being valued for the first time, really, and given the visibility that is long overdue. But a few years um, uh, later, um, after that World Heritage nomination of 1980 um, of the Palmyra site, something interesting also happened. There were video was made and produced by NHK, the Japanese state broadcaster, that presented a different, completely different narrative of the site. And here's to give you a, a small example of that by showing you a 30 second excerpt from the video. Caravan Merchants Paradise, site of Palmyra, one of the most difficult challenges for camel-drawn caravan merchants trading along the Silk Road was the journey across the vast Syrian desert. In the middle of it was an oasis city known as Palmyra, the city of date palm trees. Um, so what that 20-minute video showed was very little to do with the, the role of Palmyra linking it back to Rome and back to Europe but connections further east, right across to East Asia, including Japan. But why was Japan interested in making a video during this time in the, in the late uh, 1980s around sites such as Palmyra and, and, and identifying connections around the geographies of the Silk Road? Well, in the decades following World War II, the Silk Road gained increasing popularity in Japan, and that's a complicated story that I won't go into, but it was central to ideas of national identity in the country for both the right and the left. So examples you see here are from the Olympics of 1964, and there were attempts to reconnect Japan back to different parts of Asia, most notably Southeast Asia and Japan and China, in the context of the, uh, Japan resuscitating its reputation after the devastating events of World War II. And this slide is from the 1988 exhibition um, that was held in the city of Nara to celebrate the histories of, of Japanese connections to East Asia and to Central Asia. And you note there, there were three routes identified. The sea route, the oasis and steppe route, and Buddhist connections. Now, this is a Japanese imaginary of the Silk Road that's very, very different to European ideas of the Silk Road, which I explain in those two books that I've uh, highlighted earlier and that I won't go into now. But in that same year, 1988, UNESCO also launched its 
its Silk Road's Roads of Dialogue program. This was heavily supported by Japan. This initially started as a five-year scheme at the end of the Cold War, but it was extended right through for another five years until 1997. This was a series of workshops, symposia, museum exhibitions, conferences, publications, uh, media reports, and so on and so forth that happened in multiple countries over, over a decade. It also included a number of voyages, including this one in 1991, which was the Maritime Silk Road. And this was a ship that was um, sailed from Venice through the Suez Canal. Um, the Sultan of Oman lending his only peace uh, a troop carrier during uh, the period of the first Gulf War and signaling his role and his uh, intention of being uh, aligned with the international community at that time lending that ship to undertake a voyage that leaves Venice and, and travels right across to uh, Japan six months later, making a whole series of stops with a number of journalists and academics on board providing lectures and writing stories about the idea of a maritime Silk Road. Now, this is the first time the idea of a, of a maritime Silk Road really comes into international cultural policy and gains visibility internationally. And this took place at a time when global interest in the Silk Road was rising at the end of the Cold War. So what you see here in this slide, and if you look at the top, the number of publications around the Silk Road, which were published in English during the 1960s, right through to the 2000s, and the dramatic increase that takes place. So what you see in this proliferation of Silk Road histories is the idea of this, of this history of east-west connectivity gaining traction and gaining momentum at the time when the world was interested in globalization, but also about reviving east-west relations after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And that's confirmed here in this engram uh, graphic, which documents the, the proliferation of and publication of and use of the Silk Road word in English publication books around the world um, during the 20th century. So we know the term was invented in the 1850s, 1870s, gains popularity in the 1930s, but really comes to global fame at the end of the Cold War. So what I'm starting to show then is how the Silk Road is a much more complicated history and narrative of history than it seems. It occupies a unique place in our collective imaginaries of the past. So in, so in conceptualizing the Silk Road as a geocultural and imaginary of history, I also want to emphasize that it is neither a national nor a global history, and it is neither a, a history of a land or a people or even a region. Instead, it acts as a paradigm to depict transoceanic and transcontinental connections and the forms of trade, exchange and movement involved in that. But it also tells us and narrates ideas around civilizational histories, but less so around monuments and grand temples, but, but about connections. So it's not a history framed around architectural structures, but other material uh, forms of culture very much come to the fore. Now, you might be wondering why I'm telling you so, giving you an extensive overview of the Silk Road as a concept and why it's coming to the fore in recent years. Well, that goes, returns us back to China's Belt and Road Initiative, which has been framed as a revival of the Silk Roads for the 21st century. And what this is doing is giving dramatic impetus to the idea of the concept today. Now, Belt and Road, as a regional architecture, very much tells us that international power in the 21st century is about connectivity, but across multiple sectors, and I'll come back to that shortly. 
But what it's doing is driving depictions of history in fascinating ways. It's brought to the fore interest in the histories of connection, exchange, and mobility, both in academia and in the public domain. So just to summarise then the implications for the future of cultural governance and discourses of cultural heritage, because I think there's two significant things going on here. The first is that state power as connectivity is now leading to a shift towards histories of connection that are trans-regional and trans-cultural. But secondly, it's the non-West that's driving this. It's not the United States and it's not Europe. So what we're seeing is the rise of South-South cooperation around these histories. Now, many of you seen, have you seen these types of maps of, of China's Belt and Road Initiative, the two routes, the Overland Silk Road and the Maritime Silk Road. And of course, these are, uh, are depictions that grossly simplify the complexities of what is happening today. So if we take the example of the Maritime Silk Road, a single line in reality is a much, much more complicated geography. That is one that elevates and further elevates the significance of maritime regions as spaces of strategic connectivity in the 21st century and the choke points and so on and so forth that speak to those issues. But Belt and Road is much more than just about hardware and physical infrastructure. It's also a regional architecture and foreign policy program that, that integrates forms of educational agreements and diplomacy, the health silk road that's come to the fore on the back of COVID-19 as well as forms of digital connectivity through the idea of a digital Silk Road. We're also seeing a, an increase in Silk Road tourism between countries and obviously with Chinese tourism increasing up until the uh, uh, end of 2019. But it's also leading to fascinating uh, developments across a number of cultural sectors, as I'll give you some examples of shortly. We're seeing a whole proliferation of Silk Road networks and associations running across multiple sectors, as, as we see in these examples, as well as think tanks and conferences. So it's much more than the pipelines and the debt traps that you see in media stories. It's a, it's a highly interesting and, and uh, a multi-sector ambitious program of regional cooperation. But it's also doing important things at home in China as well in constructing new forms of cultural nationalism around this idea that China is most successful when it is open to the world and in dialogue with other countries and, in, and engaged in multiple forms through transfers of trade and technology and culture. So what the Silk Roads then, as you see in this slide, has become part of the revival, the dream of great rejuvenation. So this uh, slide you see here is from the city of Xi'an which celebrates the entry of Buddhism into, into China and the, uh, the routes undertaken by Xuanzang um, in bringing Buddhism from India up through a number of regions, uh, through Central Asia into, into China, um, and then uh, cementing that religion within the country over a longer period. So what we're also seeing both uh, what's happening domestically in China, as well as the rise of international cooperation as a number of Chinese in agencies and, and government bodies uh, increase their internationalism around fields such as archaeology, as well as intangible heritage through anthropology and other programs. So the Silk Road has become a platform for heritage diplomacy and conservation for a number of historical sites, as you see here in Sri Lanka. And these are very much around building development or building particular narratives about the past. This is not about civilizational monuments and connections. It's about 
uh, in this case, it's about histories of maritime trade and, and uh, connectivity, but also in ways that pacify and, and uh, pass the gloss over complex histories of invasion and bloodshed because of the diplomatic imperatives that drive that. So in this new era of Silk Road diplomacy, we're both seeing maritime and land-based uh, initiatives in the search for histories of connectivity, but not back to Europe, across instead across regions of South Asia to, to Africa and up into East Asia. And these become the basis of friendship claims stretching back centuries in ways that rewrite histories for building futures. Now, in this case, you might think there's nothing particularly significant going on here, just this is one maritime uh, agreement, uh, bilateral cooperation agreement. But when you see it as part of a larger architecture of Belt and Road cooperation, we see that this has dramatic implications for the future of both uh, UNESCO's policy and narratives of world history. So what you see in this map are the number of sites, which total around 500, that relate to the overland Silk Road, as recommended by the organization ICOMOS, which is one of the advisory bodies for UNESCO. And this is becoming a dramatically, uh, 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 rapidly increasing um, uh, platform for South-South cooperation around this idea of the Silk Roads as, a, as a, an idea of shared heritage. But it's also very much embedded within the developmental geographies of the Belt and Road Initiative, as you see in these corridors. And as I mentioned a number of times, what, this, what we see then is that we can see Belt and Road as a vast political economy oriented around connectivity that is raising implications for a whole series of landscapes, archaeological remains, historic urban environments across the Eurasian landmass that face complicated futures, particularly once the international borders reopen after in the, in the transitions away from the pandemic. And underpinning all this are significant shifts in the funding structures of UNESCO, as this pie chart indicates, with over 25% now coming from just two countries in East Asia, China and Japan. And this is dramatically different just to just a few decades ago. What we're also witnessing is a dramatic increase in the internationalization of Chinese archaeology, conservation, anthropology, and so forth, since the Belt and Road Initiative has been launched, as you see in this table here. And, where we, and what we're obviously seeing then is that this is taking place primarily in a series of Belt and Road countries, rather than taking place in Norway or Canada and so on and so forth. As I've mentioned, what the Belt and Road is doing is leading to new forms of South-South cooperation in the space of cultural aid, with the many implications that we might think this will be rising, raising in the coming decades. And I just want to give you Afghanistan as an excellent example of that, as recent events raise important questions about the future of development and heritage conservation, with Chinese universities now driving research that will lead potentially, I think, to very different paradigms of conservation and narratives of history and ideas of civilizational connections from those in the West. I would suggest that I think it definitely will, and we will see some significant chains, shifts in the coming years in that respect. And to illustrate that, and to anticipate some of those shifts, I just want to take you briefly to another a couple of examples, um, particularly one, Cambodia, which is a conflict, post-conflict countries, which I think illustrates or offers an interesting signpost for what might potentially be happening in, in Afghanistan in the coming years. So Cambodia suffered a profoundly devastating ge genocide and war that spanned a generation, 
starting in the 1960s with stability only ending or coming returning returning back in the early 1990s. Angkor, the World Heritage Site, as it was nominated in 1992, was pivotal to the country's revival economically, but also in terms of identity and the restoration of the nation, perhaps unparalleled anywhere in the, in the world. And the example you see here is of Angkor Wat that was heavily restored, a process that began in the, in the late 19th century under conditions of French colonialism. And the temporal restoration that was linked during that period to a French colonial narrative of restoring the country to its former glories of the 11th and 12th century. But of course, Angkor Wat is only part of a much bigger complex with many other temples in the site, including a number of sites that were left as ruins, as metaphors for a civilization and a country in ruins that was being restored by European experts in the 19th century. But as I've indicated in earlier slides, something else was going on there, that these ruins in Asia were part of a triumphalist narratives of the 19th century, post-enlightenment, increasingly scientific Europe that had confidence in restoring and, 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 and uh, advancing its fields of archaeology in these domains. And interestingly, in this same dynamic of restitution and recovery and the idea of reclaiming dignities came up again in the 1990s in this post-conflict context. And again, at this time, some of the temples were still in ruins, as you see here. But during this period, the late 1990s, the early 2000s, the Archaeological Survey of India wanted to undertake some major restoration that was blocked by UNESCO experts who, who claimed that these trees, as you see here, were authentic images of Cambodia, and I quote there. And this, what this was doing was reproducing a romanticized imaginary that became universalized under world heritage, much like we saw in Palmyra, a language of authenticity that restabilized European or Francophonic imaginaries of Angkor as a lost and dead civilization. But in the early 2000s, France's diplomatic and economic grip over the country was diminishing. At the same time, India's was increasing through an increase in its developmental aid. And this led to a shift in the power balance of how Angkor was being managed as a World Heritage Site. The Archaeological Survey of India started to undertake some major restoration, as you see here. With this happening in a few short years, this major forms of reconstruction. But this is much more than just a question of archaeological and architectural conservation. What we see here in play are distinct civilizational discourses and ideas of civilizational hierarchies and the restoration of former glories of an Indian civilization that stretches across down into Southeast Asia, in some ways paralleling the ways in which the French saw themselves in, during that period, but through a very different cultural politics today. This approach was questioned and discredited by Western experts. But what the ASI would advance was this was, was a narrative of shared heritage around the idea of an Indian civilization, in the sense that the temple was both Hindu and Buddhist and a syncretic site. And as you see in this orange text, the idea that the archaeological survey of India was making sacrifices for a noble cause. And the idea this was heavily framed around a shared heritage between two countries conjoined by history both ancient and modern, and that's the colonial histories in the modern. And this has been a language of shared heritage that gained visibility and credibility in a shifting geopolitical landscape today. And to very briefly turn to Myanmar and the site of Bagan, we see something else similar going on as well in these ruins that have been restored, and as you see in these quotes, condemned again by European experts.
as a Disneyfied version of history that contravenes the conservation principles that are drawn from the international best practice standards, such as the Venice Charter. These experts accuse the military junta of Myanmar for undertaking inappropriate forms of restoration, um, as you see in these examples. But in fact, what we saw here was um, restoration being funded by a Korean Buddhist so association. Again, um, seeing this as a, as a transnational shared heritage of Buddhist uh, significance, with Korea and India, both Cambodia and Myanmar, offering very different ideas to, to European approaches to conservation as sites worthy of restoration. No longer are they seen as sites of ruined, romanticized, lost, dead civilizations, but instead can be revived and resuscitated, resuscitated uh, as active uh, Buddhist sites or Hindu sites. So to pull these different threads together then, to, and to return to this map and the top one, what we see is a European countries, whether it was the British and the French and, and the US in the 1920s and 30s, who were leading the research. And what that led to is particular historical, or sorry, what that involves, involved was particular historical cir circumstances that created this situation. The British needed to protect the Suez Canal, the Zionist movement at that time, and the post-World War I mandate system um, that involved debates in, around archaeology in, in the League of Nations. And this all shaped the locations of research and the types of research that were being conducted. So in other words, what I'm suggesting here is that we will need to read these, these uh, maps as political economies of scholarship and the material culture conservation. And that leads to certain geographies of civilizational significance and the foundations in the top map around ideas of a Western civilization that had implications for how conservation and archaeology was done during that period and what forms of culture and history were ignored. So what I'm suggesting then is that we need to read today in exactly the same way, where, who, why and how conservation and archaeological and other forms of research are being undertaken. And the structures that stabilised in the 20th century are now changing in significant ways. And it's within this context that we need to see the form and the shaping nature of and the future of heritage in Afghanistan and the withdrawal of the United States in the last few months that I think will have long term implications. In the sense that Afghanistan is a key partner for the Belt and Road Initiative. And what you see here is a China-Afghanistan, China-Pakistan joint statements on cooperation in the Asian Initiative for heritage conservation that have been signed in the, in the last six to 12 months as a part of a much larger Asian initiative for cultural heritage conservation. Those agreements were followed 11 days later by a bilateral agreement with Iran, again, a key partner in the Belt and Road Initiative. Well, what we're also seeing is regional organisations are now also picking up the Silk Road's Dialogue of Civilizations disc discourses, such as ISESCO, which launched recently a programme to outline and index civilization, civilizational and cultural roads. We're seeing others as well, the Aga Khan Development Fund and various bilateral initiatives between Saudi Arabia, Oman and Qatar and others in, in, in this space now in heritage diplomacy that are shifting the funding and, and, and nature of the research that's being undertaken. ISESCO has been operational for three decades and their role in heritage diplomacy has been widely ignored by academics, particularly in the English-speaking world, and rarely figure in the story of global heritage governance. And I think that's something we need to change. But this map I showed you earlier that relates to the Overland Silk Road and the geographies of cooperation that are now forming around world heritage um, is only part of the story. 
what's beginning to be understood is a need to, un to much, give a much more detailed articulation of maritime heritage. And this was a meeting that took place to, to initiate that process in 2017 in London. And what this begins to reveal is the need to understand much more and develop much more robust and rigorous forms of scholarship that can, that can, that can guide international cultural policy in the coming years in the ways that countries want to generate world heritage nominations and other time forms of cultural policy around maritime histories that span oceans and different seas. But of course, maritime geographies raise a whole series of fascinating questions, both for academia and cultural policy, ones that we've only begun to really think about, let alone solve. They present new ideas about world histories, ideas about maritime civilization that are now gaining ascendancy in, in different regions, particularly in India and China. This also raises interesting and difficult questions around centers and peripheries relative to land-based geographies of civilization that dominated the 19th and 20th century. And with Belt and Road and China leading and driving so much of this, are we now leading to, are we heading into a new era where we're seeing Sino or Chinese-centric uh, depictions of civilization, including maritime geographies, come to the fore? And how are we to conceptualize maritime geographies if they're not civilizational zones? Do we think about them in terms of routes, for example, and building narratives of world trade around these ideas of routes and connections that is uh, much more productive and progressive than I think a lot of the ways in which heritage policy formed in the second half of the 20th century? But of course, all this at the moment remains rather vague. There's lots of complexities that require discussion and research, both for scholarship and in policy. But at the same time, what we're seeing on the back of Belt and Road is the idea of Maritime Silk Road gaining momentum for organisations such as the World Tour Tourism Organisation, which of course is trying to accelerate tourism in this space. So you see on this map as, as a combination of cultural sites and cruise ship ports, which I think will be highly significant around in the coming years. So the Silk Road offers a fascinating example of the porous boundaries between academia, public history, heritage and popular culture. And the, and the World Heritage Listing of Chuanzhou in 2021 is just a good example of this, which has been unofficially badged as a maritime Silk Road poor city, with a nomination emphasising intra-Asian histories of trade, religious and cultural exchange, as you see from this text. But notably, uh, the World Heritage nomination, the actual term, was called the Emporium of the World. And in some ways, I think the Silk Road is beginning to rewrite world history and give visibility to histories of trade and the spread of ideas, religions, people, cultural goods and technologies that haven't been given the adequate visibility to date. And this is now being internationalised as strategy on behalf of China with a 26-city Maritime Silk Road Alliance that's driving this forms of heritage diplomacy with other regions around maritime histories of forms of connection and trade and the spread of technology and ideas, religion and so forth with other countries. So what this is doing is bringing new visibility to trade histories between East Asia and Southeast Asia, as well as to the Arab world and beyond, even up towards the Mediterranean. And this opens up different questions and opportunities for rewriting histories of globalization and world trade, and as I've mentioned, civilizational centers in the public domain. Because heritage is very much about building and creating public imaginaries of history. Histories of navigation, which, which foreground the connections between culture and nature in ways that we haven't really thought about in recent times adequately. So I focused a lot on China, and just to begin to wrap up, 
Of course, these imaginaries of history of the maritime Silk Road sit within regional and geopolitical geostrategic architectures of connectivity. And this, of course, is making others nervous. So India is one example of another country that's responding with its own strategic architectures for foreign policy that are built around imaginaries of history. And the idea of a geocultural imaginary of an Indian Ocean built around ideas of a, of a monsoon wind uh, monsoon wind histories and the trade and environmental um, histories that you can trace through this idea and this concept of Morsan. Um, that is a very much uh, underpinning the idea of building a, a regional alliance, which uh, is now reached in the more than 30 or so countries that spans across the Indian Ocean. And of course, what this does for India is put India at the centre of a, a transoceanic and a transcontinental history. It's all part of a project to develop a maritime consciousness within the country itself. But it's also a political economy of history and heritage that is built around histories of connectivity and routes being proclaimed to be a, a shared heritage among a number of countries in the region. Indonesia is also turning to its maritime geographies, promoting ideas of spice histories, with, us, with spice heritage being now an, an ambitious uh, program of world heritage and heritage diplomacy across a number of sectors that Indonesia is pushing that takes it away from the histories of European trade that puts Indonesia at the centre of global histories of spice, and in ways also that build regional identities in Southeast Asia, as you see in this slide. But civilizational discourse is also becoming, as we've seen in recent times, once again central to museum curatorial practices, as we see an example of the Louvre in Abu Dhabi. But interestingly, the Asian Civilization Museum is reframing its now its programs around routes and connectivities in the ways it thinks about its collections. And I think that's going to be an ongoing trend as well as, as museums in different regions increasingly collaborate. So in looking to the future, I would suggest that all of this is opening up a new space for forms of trans-regional histories of connectivity and part of a blue turn in the global history discourses that we are seeing today. And I would suggest that we will see greater recognition being given to previously overlooked trans-regional, trans-cultural and trans-environmental histories, both in the academia and in public history, as well as in forms of, as well as forms of heritage diplomacy that are both bilateral, and multilateral, as you, and the types of scholarship that underpin these types of collaboration and public history discourses that we see in these book covers here. So, to conclude, um, I would suggest that we need to conceptualise the use of history, as it's often called, beyond the national that framed a lot of the critical debate in the 20th century, towards debates around transnational and transoceanic and transcultural histories that are coming to the fore today. This is a rise of roots that are based. Uh, are being driven by today's geopolitical events and the ideas and the ways in which states now gain power through multiple forms of connectivity in the 21st century. This is leading to new civilizational imaginaries coming to the fore that are circulating within international affairs through programs such as people-to-people -people connectivities and the language of international intercultural dialogue that a number of governments are pushing very heavily now and I think will be in on uh, once borders reopen, uh, once uh, the pandemic is brought up fully under control. This is also a shifting landscape of heritage diplomacy, with rising powers replacing Europe and the United States in many regions. And, and, and in this presentation, what I've traced by beginning going back to the early 20th century and bringing us forward to the 21st 
is to argue that this is reshaping how, where, why, and in what ways conservation takes place, and the narratives of regions and civilizations, as well as world history, that get built around this. And to emphasize that, what it's giving visibility today, as China, India, and others enter this into this space is that new narratives of regional and world history that are coming to the fore. And so if you're interested in these, these themes and these events, there are two books that, uh, that uh, map out some of these arguments in much more detail. And on that, I'll hand back to you, Alia. Thank you very much. Um, it's, it's so interesting, all these different ways of thinking. And I know that you are one of the leading researchers on this. And I was very casual in my introduction of you, but I should I, I will put in uh, the chat your formal title. No, 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 no,
researchers, institutions, individuals um, in China and in Belt and Road countries to think of that scale of Eurasia. That's the geocultural form is, is a silk road that incorporates the continent and the oceans around it. And that's where, and then ways in which different actors, um, not just Chinese, buy into it. So it's not a, it's not a, um, it's not about the, just about the export of, of China as a cultural power. It's the geocultural form of the Silk Road through which this is happening today, which is a much more interesting and complicated set of affairs. Yeah, it's really intriguing. And even the idea of what it, this Asia as, as a united front, the way. Absolutely, it absolutely. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, and yeah. that's such a, yeah, it's coming up even in film studies. Um, yeah, exactly. Right. right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. No media projects and film and doc. Yeah, absolutely. I'm seeing so many questions. I want to make sure we get to them. Um, I, I knew this one was coming um, and maybe I'll combine it with another question I see. How is maritime heritage being framed by the Gulf states? Um, and this is something we discussed very much at NYU. So the students mm. also in the chat in this talk will probably be very familiar with this one. Sure. Um, but also, so I will add to that one. Um, how 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 does Islam factor into this in terms of uh, China being um, uh, not so focused on religion cult uh, in in terms of heritage and culture, but with Islam for the last twenty or thirty years having been very much a part of what connects a huge part of Asia. Right. Well, they're potentially two different questions in some respects, right? Because uh, um, because obviously China's engaging with with a, um, a whole series of countries that are majority Islam, and so there's different ways in which it's framing that. So, so for example, um, the Chinese uh, admiral Zheng He that was that's as uh, undertook a number of voyages across the Indian Ocean, has become very much, and is a Muslim eunuch, has been very much uh, rolled out as a, as a figure of Chinese diplomacy with um, Muslim countries, and whether it's Pakistan or others, or Indonesia um, or Malaysia, and, and he has different kind of histories and connotations. So that's what's interesting to follow, the different ways in which um, these particular, these abstract histories or, or cultural forms, whether it's a religion, um, or a or a region gets framed around certain individuals or certain iconic figures. So um, so when it comes to the Gulf, I think that uh, uh, that will be framed around the histories of trade. Um, and so I know that I mean Robert's been involved with building replicas and is doing that now. So that also speaks to you know, Indian Ocean trade histories. That is um, that is also I think also Gulf states understanding their strategic place in the world. So the so the Maritime Silk Road, um, the reason why it goes through Oman and Muscat was kind of so visible in that place, and it still is in the, in the Belt and Road geography of, uh, of a Maritime Silk Road language, is because um, there was an understanding of, of connecting international affairs during the, during the, the early 1990s um, to this idea of history and, and the role of Gulf states within the kind of uh, both both uh, the past and the future. So I think we're seeing that happen again. I, you know, I, I, I would certainly defer to people on, you know, in your region who who are witnessing this far more than I am. Obviously, that I think we'll be able to give some interesting examples. Of this and it's not a wholesale revolution where you know previous narratives of history, culture, and heritage are being forgotten. Of course, it's there's multiple things going on, and there's and and um, uh, and these are these are 
transitions and overlays. And this is why this idea of a maritime geography is interesting because it overlays on top of existing national, regional ideas about cultural affinity, histories of trade. But the, but the important thing is um, who, what is what we're seeing is um, the return of diffusion history. So for example, um, an Indian academic and a scholar and an institution will often see that try and narrate the histories of Indian regional connectivities into somewhere like Southeast Asia or East Africa or same with a Korean or Japanese or or an Italian. And so um, so who gets to uh, fund projects, so on and so forth, means that, you know, if Gulf states are funding those, and I think we do see particular narratives come to the fore rather than, you know, um, and, and where those, you know, uh, where those take us, we'll, 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 we'll learn and see over the coming years. And that'd be interesting to follow in terms of research. Yeah, and, and and as you said, you are, you are working with the Vakra Center, and we, um, not me personally, but the members of the Vakra Center, um, are heavily involved in um, construction yeah. of of maritime connections. Actually, physically building a boat. Um, so, uh, and amongst other things. So, yeah. But um, I will skip the Gulf for a moment because there's quite a few other questions. Um, there's a question here. Do you think globalization did more harm than good or vice versa in preserving heritage sites and taking into consideration the lives of the residents? And maybe this links to tourism as well. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a massive question. I mean, it's, um, uh -huh. yes, I mean, that's a complicated one. Certainly, um, it depends how you think about globalization. When you think of uh, framing globalization is in terms of historically identifying key moments that you would suggest that this is when globalization really kicks in. I mean, certainly the 20th century is global conflict is was devastating to cultural infrastructure around the world, particularly in Europe. Um, and and but on the on the, on the back of that, um, uh, obviously that led to uh, international um, efforts that um, obviously um, as as exemplified by UNESCO and others. But in the late twentieth century, um, the the globalization produces culture and it proliferates culture and it gives it gives value to the to the local localized forms of culture in a way that. This pitching of conservation versus development or, or the global versus local doesn't really kind of capture. So I think it's a highly complicated uh, picture in the ways in which um, global tourism has produced cultural economies that have supported local cultural forms. Um, and as much as kind of a, uh, this idea that globalization is just about spreading and homogenizing culture, it's been a much, much more complicated picture than that. And now that China's driving things, it also changes again. Interesting. There's a lot, like you said, we could go deeper on, but I want with that one, but um, that's really helpful, I think, for um, for our, our listeners to hear. Um, there's one that's slightly related to that right above it that I've, uh, given the climate summit happening now, how important is the region, this, this region in combating climate change, or I think the Belt Road, how would geopolitics impact climate cooperation? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say um, uh, it's an interesting. I mean, I, I've had projects on sustainability and climate change in in the Gulf, and and always, I think that one of the uh, interesting things that you really could, um, I think, could be given much more visibility is the idea of uh, uh, everybody's focusing on green and, and the green economy and green um, and the notion of of 
it becomes a metaphor for sustainability, et cetera. But I think also we could think about the Gulf in terms of brown heritage, in terms of thinking about other ways in which, um, you know, the ways in which greening the Gulf just is really counter to the idea of a sustainable traditional practices that that were there before um, uh, kind of new expectations of urbanization and development and comfort and indoor comfort and outdoor comfort, so on and so forth, that have taken hold. So I think there's many lessons to be learned from from the from the Gulf around climate cooperation and also about climate climate sensitive living as well and li- living in you know obviously hot and, and uh, um, arid environments in a way that uh, is going to be potentially the future of a number of other regions. So I think there's interesting traditional practices that, uh, and, and forms of obviously in, in forms, of, forms of the architecture is the first and foremost way but there's other all sorts of cultural practices that can speak to that issue that I think other regions you know we can think about other ways of, of, uh, of thinking about climate change and cooperation around that. Mm-hmm. It's a strong connection, really, with between climate change and heritage now, and exactly, the, yeah, yeah, and yeah. The, the invention of heritage. And um, here's an interesting question that goes back to the idea of Asia. Do you think this increase in South-South cultural connectivity and heritage restoration will breed a sense of unity in Asia, or will it prompt an an increased sense of competitiveness? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think probably both. I think that's that's one of the things that I'm I'm sort of uh, I keep when I'm writing I keep hovering between the two because because yes it's the Silk Road in the European imaginary is about East and West but in the Chinese East Asian imaginary it's also about primarily about intra Asian histories so there's so it does kind of go back to this idea of Pan Asianism in some respect but 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 that still finds its fault lines and tensions between regions between countries. So at one level, there's a language of, you know, we've got this shared Asian values that's and this uh, civilizational connectivity that's um, some way fundamentally different to the West, but there's still deep uh, um, uh, anxieties about kind of uh, rising powers uh, in different regions, whether it's China, India. Um, and of course, once you come to, you know, Iran, Turkey, et cetera, it becomes, and then you've got the influence of Russia, we've got a really complicated geocultural politics playing out, which I think, you know, Belt and Road in China is unleashed in interesting ways. So so I think we're in for an interesting, complicated future around this cooperation and competition around this stuff. And you see that playing out in a whole series of arenas today. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting also because of the Asia connection. Asia connects to the Mediterranean circle yeah. on one hand, it connects to Africa on another, and then also the whole Eastern European thing, which also came up in in the chat, the, the connection, the huge connection of Asia to Eastern Europe as well. Um, so yeah, a lot of different arenas, as you were saying. Mm. Um, and which one do you want to belong to? Uh, exactly. Yeah. Um, um, or how many the next can you belong to? Being in the center, what can the active role of the Gulf states? Is that, is that our next one? Yeah. Yeah, that's um, that's uh, that that's that's the that's the subtext of my presentation because I think that's the interesting question. Where where does the Gulf sit in this? That's and I think that's the interesting question now is where that's uh, I left that as the kind of hanging question of, as to where will the Gulf sit in this? There's indications of of um, increased investment, obviously at certain bilateral agreements, but I think. Um, uh, you know, I deliberately picked somewhere like Afghanistan to say, you know, where will the Gulf sit with this? How, and how 
where there's different players entering in because I think somewhere like India will get involved in this area. So, so whether you know what sort of engagement will the golf take in this? So I think it will be a fascinating issue to follow. And and yes, it's it's one to definitely follow in the future. Yeah. Um, and there's one now here. I want to make sure we stay in the time. Um, I'm, uh, thank you so much for the very interesting and fascinating presentation. I have a question regarding communities along the Silk Road. What do they think will be one of the greatest risks regarding their heritage and lifestyles, especially considering how UNESCO nominations and heritage industries usually affect the sites and block them in time and space? And yeah, I no, I think, I think yes, again, that's, um, you know, I show those maps because this is a vast kind of geography of, of cultural policy that's going to affect there as, there as a highly complex ethnic, religious, cultural uh, geography below those types of maps. So become invisibilized by those maps. So, so what this means for people on the ground, for minority groups, as states, so so often internationalism, as in the inter-nationalism, leads to majority kind of representations or representations of a nation that privilege majority cultures and religions. So, and this is what we're seeing in in India today. Um, so, the idea that uh, a country is internationally engaged means that um, that leads to the privileging of certain cultural groups because um, they can celebrate those on the international stage in a way that kind of disguises and masks over the cultural violence that might be happening domestically. So I think this really does, and this, again, this is a great kind of topic for future research of how this, how this, uh, what this means for, for groups and, and minorities, and particularly minority religions in certain countries. That's a complicated issue. Yeah. Um, I actually, there's a question kind of related to it that I'm going to go to next and then, okay. and then come back. Um, it's, it's, uh, wait, did I get the right one? Yes. Um, thank you for this interesting presentation. Since the start of the conflicts in the MENA region, we have seen new projects taking place to safeguard cultural heritage that are funded by international heritage organizations. However, it seems most of these projects are concerned with classical archaeological sites. Do you think these funds and projects are a new form of Eurocentric perspective of defining heritage in these regions? Well, I guess that's an interesting question. I think um, I think it definitely speaks to uh, some of the themes I was saying. I mean, they they, they reproduce Eurocentric and, and European. Eurocentric is a, is a complicated word, but it's certainly European uh, um, privileged. You know, geography, uh, projects have certainly privileged European perspectives um, that can be labelled as Eurocentric for sure. And I think that we're seeing a continuation of that, and and certainly a choice of sites and how they're valued. Um, and Afghanistan is a fascinating example of that. So, um, because of the different, obviously, the different types of um, sites of the world heritage and speak to different religions and different cultural groups within that country. So, so when uh, the Japanese uh, or the Chinese are getting involved, then I think we're going to see very different uh, types of sites, different projects being funded. But what they also means is that. Because there were other these country, other country, these other countries involved, that leads to new forms of illicit trafficking and the looting of artifacts, etc., which, which is a whole another set of cultural complexities. Um, because archaeology and state-driven projects leads to private collecting in various forms. So, so yeah, there's kind of a, um, a, a an interesting set of shifts there that I think are wrapped up in that question. Yeah, and I'm. Um 
I'm trying to group the, um, I'm going to go to this question. How does the Silk Road project benefit or influence Chinese people in your opinion? Because as a Chinese, I feel like this project is just something political in, on television, but somehow detached from ordinary life. Uh, where's that, where's that one go? I've missed that. Um, year, it's from year. Oh yes. Okay. Uh, so, uh, uh, well, I think, I think oh, well, that's an interesting question because I feel like this, yes, I mean, um, it depends. I mean, it's interesting uh, if you're talking about overseas Chinese or the Chinese from mainland China, so from the PRC. So um, that's an interesting observation around, I mean, it's obviously, uh, um, I, think, I think obviously the government is taking a huge risk in, in building this foreign policy. And the ways in which that benefits a, a few people in China is is, is going to be uh, um, distinctly the case, I think, in terms of the elite capture of resources and the and the entrepreneurialism of people going out and building um, projects and relationships and trade deals, etc., of both uh, the state backed or independent of the state. Um, so how it how it affects the individual. Uh, I think that will be also a, a, a picture that different cities are different. Very, very different scenarios because it's because it's now leading to lots of investment in the northwest in cities such as Xi'an, um, but also down in cities such as uh, Guangzhou that's also getting a lot of maritime Silk Road investment. So I think it's going to be a very uneven picture. Different cities getting different kind of benefits from this narrative. She, yeah, she uh, followed it up with the question about um, does it reinforce. Uh, does the Silk Road reinforce the hierarchy of heritage? Are they building a new hierarchy competing with the Eurocentric one? Yeah, I mean that's a good question in terms of there's definitely this is not this is not a, a flat civilizational discourse. I think I think we are seeing uh, different hierarchies form because of the ways in which different countries are invest uh, being able the capacity to pump in. Uh, so much money. I mean, China's capacities for digital heritage production um, and also the uh, archaeological sites, um, countries such as Laos or um, Uzbekistan, etc., just obviously um, do not have the resources to to match that massive investment. So, so again, we do have asymmetrical relationships in the way that, and that's that's the story of the of the last hundred and fifty years. And I think we're that's another uh, another. You know, a pattern that's going to continue into the future, mm. and that gets mm. hidden under this language of bilateral partnerships and cooperation. It's that—that's what's interesting, and and, um, and and then you can even trace it down into the kind of the details of the contracts and what happens to artifacts and so on and so forth. Mm. Actually, there's an interesting question here. I, I I might have lost the linguistic meaning, but I think I understand what he's what they're asking. I would like to add that the West in China, in Chinese context can be referred mm. to as the Middle East. And then mm. he puts it in Chinese. Or, uh, in the context of Maritime Silk Road, will the differences within Asia be more emphasized than the Europe-Asia differences? Mm. Yeah. So um, that's, yeah. Sorry, go on, yeah. you were going to say? No, I just wanted to make sure I was clear. Is he saying that in Chinese, M Middle East is what what the West is referred to? Well, so I, I I published an article recently on something like civilizations in dialogue, something something that um, traced uh, the Silk Road 
discourse that emerged in Japan in the 20, second half of the 20th century that was using UNESCO's East-West uh, initiatives, including their major East-West project during the Cold War. And for Japan, it was also West Asia. So, so the, the West was West Asia and really stopped at Turkey. And, and that was, again, built into this idea of a pan-Asianism and, and affinities right across Asia. And, and so this idea that it reaches East-West there's, there's a lot more going on underneath. So I think the same with China today that this, you're seeing that one as I, you know, gave those, that picture of all the, the leaders, um, uh, at the dialogue of civilizations conference in 2019. And yes, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, a West that kind of reaches the Middle East and West Asia. Um, and a lot of this discourse and, and obviously then, and the interesting thing is where does Africa fit in this, um, in terms of, uh, the kind of geocultural meeting kind of geostrategic geographies. So the idea of the, is the maritime silk road? Absolutely. I think this becomes a, a language to, uh, to tell the story of, uh, intra Asian maritime geographical connections. Um, in a way that uh, European scholars haven't done, because a lot of if you go to European library, then the Indian Ocean doesn't really enter into books on world history until the Europeans enter the Indian Ocean. Uh, so yes, we're called pre-European uh, histories coming to the fore, I think, through these types of projects, and and that's why I mentioned the city of uh, Tuanzhou that's uh, listed as world heritage, which very much tells that story. I'm really aware of the time. Um, yep. uh, technicians also have to go home, and I know it's like way past midnight. No, I don't mind. It's so fine. <laughs> I'm trying to make sure that I got most. I did not ask one of the questions. It, it might be a little bit off topic, but oddly okay. something you and I were talking about before airtime. Um, the, uh, but I will ask it, um, and you can answer it or not. Um, here in the U.S., there's a strong story around the oppression of the Uyghurs by the Chinese government. Is there a similar message in Islamic countries? Is there a view of oppression of the Uyghurs in Islamic countries, especially the Gulf states? Yeah, so that's a that's a good question, and it's something um, that's I mean that's a again a complicated question around the kind of uh, um, sort of uh, China's engagement with Turkic countries. That's um, the uh, this and also the ideas of constructing these kind of uh, um, uh, geographies of uh, the of Central Asia that don't map onto nation state geographies today. So, so yes, this this kind of history of of a Silk Road is, in some ways, also dissolving um, these these uh, these um, distinct histories of groups such as the such as the Uyghur. So, so, so the same time it's supposedly celebrating kind of these Central Asian crossroads histories, it's also um, creating a kind of narrative that's that's uh, invisibilizing those distinct geographies of pre-nation state groups uh, that stretch across Central Asia, across to West Asia, and the Uyghur being the most obvious example. So the, how that late relates to forms of bilateral diplomacy today is also complicated. And I think um, my sense is a lot of countries uh, are, are not comfortable with what's happening, but are nervous to raise it because of because of obviously the consequences of doing that and, and the bilateral uh, consequences of doing that with China. So again, this that's one of the issues with this kind of heritage diplomacy is it's, it's imperative to, 
to remain diplomatic and retain diplomatic connections, it means that these more difficult, complicated histories often get kind of ignored and 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 ex and explicitly kind of pushed under the carpet. Yeah, and and it's a yeah, and it's a very political one um, everywhere. Um, so I think, um, in conscious of the time, I will ask one final question. Um, okay. And at, and from the chat, and um, with the increasing recognition of how perception based on funding sources, politics, on ontologies, etc., determines interpretation of history or archaeological sites, are the traditional disciplines applied to understanding the past becoming outdated and and undependable? Um, do these disciplines matter anymore? Can we mm. rely on the results of academic research? Are we becoming more interested in the uses? of something than the past, as you mentioned, than the facts? That's an interesting question, yeah. Um, uh, that's, I, I, I don't think, I mean, it, I think it's, I wouldn't say it's outdated. I think, I think a lot of disciplines do evolve. I think there's, I do think, and we've talked about this, the need for um, new knowledge, a uh, kind of new knowledge framework, new knowledge apparatus to to understand what's going on today. I think that's, that's certainly the case, and I think some disciplines and certain uh, certain scholars in different regions are picking up on this faster than others. So, and I think we do need some interdisciplinary research that's also in, inter-regional and intra-regional to understand. Um, these types of connections and and I mean there's obviously the massively complicated issue of language and how you cover multiple regions, multiple countries. So, so yeah, so so some collaborations and and, uh, and multiple disciplinary collaborations is 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 important to understand how we think about this today in a way that is to just talk about Egyptian archaeology and Egyptian identity doesn't quite capture I think what's what's going on. So 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 the um, one of the ways to think about this. Uh, uh, could be, you know, Silk Road as method. What does that mean? Um, or Belt and Road as method. Um, and and how do we go about thinking about that as, as a kind of research paradigm? And that raises really interesting questions for, for, for universities as well as individual scholars. I think we're going to leave it at that with those questions raised. Um, I have put in the chat your formal title, um, and it, it, it's also on the NYU um, website. Um, but... Formally, I would like to thank Dr. Tim Winter for being here with us this evening, for answering um, uh, these really interesting questions and this very complicated. <laughs> and these very overlapping um, story, uh, questions about heritage and identity. Um, so um, maybe we're going to have you come here one day soon. Um, uh, uh, okay, Amna's asking, um, could you show us your book title page again so okay. she can take a screenshot? Uh, uh, I can certainly do that. Um, I can find it again. Uh, oh, what's happening here? The other thing I can do is, is there's a website, silkroadfutures.net, uh, that. Um, that uh, oh, that's a great site, actually. That kind of covers these, um, but I'm just. I can share that screen. That should be sharing. 
This one, right? Is that sharing? Is that the one you mean, Amna? Oh, there's the website. That's the website, and then click through it again. Okay. Think we got it. Okay. Um, all right. So, um, yeah, I think um, if there's other questions, we'll find a way to get them to you, and hopefully, we'll oh yeah, I'm happy to. Yeah, indeed. And hopefully, we'll have you have a chance to come visit us and see the research projects here, and talk more with the indeed. students, yeah. and faculty. So, Sounds I want to wish you. Yes, we're looking forward to that. And thank you so much for your time. I know you've had a lot of presentations this week, and I know it's very no, late no. there. <laughs> no, thanks very much for the for the invitation, and thanks to everybody that's helped in organizing everything. So it's uh, again a great opportunity to, to speak. Thank you. Good night, everybody. And this will be transcribed uh, available as a transcription. Good night, all. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.